Welcome to the CoinGam Podcast. I'm your host, Fritz Charles. On this podcast, we attack the crypto asset and blockchain space from all angles, from the underlying technology to the economic impact. Every single episode, we try to look at the blockchain space from a new lens, and this episode was no different. But before we start this episode, I wanted to share a bit about our advisory services. We've built a huge network of blockchain professionals who can help you out with your projects. Whether you want to launch an ICO or you're just looking to do some deeper research, we can put you in the right place. We have advisors, blockchain developers, and legal professionals. If you need help, just visit us at coingamma.com. Now, let's start the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Coin Gamma Podcast. Today, we are very honored to have Nicole Tay. Hello, hello. <laughs> Welcome aboard. Thanks for coming on. Nicole is a blockchain expert in healthcare. She has her MPH from Columbia University. She's a creative healthcare professional expert at the intersection of blockchain technology and healthcare. As a queer woman of color, Nicole is very passionate about using blockchain and other emerging health technologies to bolster underserved communities. In her spare time, she writes and directs short films so we're definitely going to have to dig into that um she she has a lot of other interests as well she's a second degree black belt in taekwondo she almost made the olympic team but decides to go to college instead i guess that's our gift she obviously writes films mostly around satire and social justice which you know obviously interacts with some of her professional interests as well and she's a huge fan of mcdonald pies yeah, I didn't even know. I didn't even know there were seven kind of pies. There um, are more than seven, actually. Wow! <laughs> I just haven't tried them. That's awesome. That's awesome. I, I know apple, and that's about it. I, I need to. Oh, there, I need, there's a world of I, McDonald's pies. I Literally, need, a world globally. I need, to, I need to become way more adventurous. Awesome, awesome. Well, you know, obviously, you know, you're a very, you're a, you're a person of a lot of skills and diverse interests. Please elaborate a little bit more on your background and. Tell us a little bit about your career path. Yeah, of course. Um, so when I was, after I um, had trained really hard and did not make the Olympic team, I decided to go to college and I went to Wellesley where I studied English and biology. And I had a real interest in mostly like science and figuring out creative ways to leverage that interest, which eventually did bring me into my uh, master's of public health at Columbia. And um, there, I think, like, right, it was right around the time of um, Trayvon Martin. And really, out of that situation, I think, was catalyzed um, my interest in specifically social epidemiology. And so social epi, which is what I studied, is the um, <clears throat> a look into how systems of power, systems of oppression like sexism, racism, uh, your socioeconomic status, things like that, all accumulate to affect your health. Oh, wow. And so you can think about that as kind of like um, <clears throat> biostatistics, but for social justice. Got it. Got it. Now, is it due to stress? Is that that why? is a very, very big one. Um, I'm actually um, <clears throat> at my current company. 
I'm at, I actually just gave a diversity and inclusion presentation, but it wasn't one of those like fluffy ones with like rainbows and Skittles that okay. we all come to expect. And I actually was able to go into kind of the effects of how stress and specifically things like microaggressions, while they may seem like, you know, uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but worlds will never hurt me. Um, how they can actually start to have these cumulative effects whereby um, the next one after the next one, they, um, they're perceived as biologically more stressful and more and more stressful to the point that um, there was this fantastic study that was done by Geronimus and they found that uh, black women basically had kind of like the mortality and the stress load of white women who were 10 years older than them. And that was after f controlling for things like their age, where they lived, and most importantly, um, their socioeconomic status. So um, it was really, really groundbreaking there. And I think that still a lot of these ideas are what drives me to use blockchain technology as fundamentally a tool for a more disruptive and equitable future. Awesome. You say your current company. What, what what company is that? And is your focus on? I mean, obviously you you educated them about the the issues around diversity and, and inclusion. But um, is your focus around blockchain at your current company as well? Unfortunately, not. So okay. I'm doing a little bit of pharmaceutical um, advertising at the moment. Sure. Uh, but you know, as as this healthcare and blockchain space starts to grow a bit more and we're starting to really see that pick up this year um, and especially into 2019, um, I am really excited to uh, see how I might start to leverage some of this expertise in a really significant way. Got it. Got it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, this is definitely a a, a, a passion because you're, you're finding time outside of your day job to kind of pursue it and research it. So so that's that's pretty awesome. Um, so I guess what I guess when did you dis I mean, throughout your path from school into, you know, this current role, what how, where, where did you come across blockchain? Um, was it during school? Was it at a, you know, a networking event? How did you come across it? And what, what made you kind of decide you wanted to use a lot of your time outside of work? Um, and right, making movies and, and focus on blockchain. <laughs> right, as if like the blockchain, like doing all of this blockchain stuff like isn't enough. Right. Um, but, you know, I um, actually, I got into this, um, I think early last year. Okay. And um, I have a friend, her name is Jinglan Wang, and she's been heavily involved in specifically the crypto space for a very long time. And by long time, I just mean like since 2013, which basically makes her like a grandma right. at this point. Every, so, uh, every crypto year is 10 years. So yeah, it's she's like 50. dog years, but the crypto years. Um, and so Jing came over to stay with um, me and my girlfriend and uh, I had remembered back at uh, when I knew her at Wellesley, she was doing all this stuff with this thing called Bitcoin, and I she was doing stuff with the MIT Bitcoin Club, and I had no idea like what that was all about. I had kind of only loosely heard about it in um, association with like the dark net and drugs. So I was kind of like, so I see that you're still, you know, in 2017, I, I see that you're still doing this like whole Bitcoin thing. Um, so what, what is that? How does that work? And, um, that basically carried on to become a two hour conversation that, 
you know, really catalyzed my interest in the space. And I think really interest is um, an understatement because I, I just remember her after explaining blockchain to me, I went to go to sleep and I literally couldn't sleep till like wow. 3 a.m. because wow. I was, because you, you think about once you kind of wrap your mind around blockchain technology, um, you start to think about, okay, well, what are all the places around, what are all this, the industries and processes around me that have, you know, these unnecessary intermediaries, processes that could be automated by computer protocols, but we have a human being cross-checking different databases or facilitating contracts. And where do we have um, industries whereby there's just an immense lack of trust? And healthcare, just to throw it out there, is probably is probably one of the most archaic conflict unnecessarily complicated trustless industries i think that we have in america right. so I, I really i couldn't turn my brain off and after that i i just caught the blockchain bug yeah it's crazy everybody has that kind of uh you know uh, blockchain and crypto in this whole world kind of has a uh, religious a lot of parallels to religion and so everybody <laughs> has that one person that was you know that kind of uh uh, was the person that kind of converted them, right? And maybe it took them a long time to, you know, get buy-in, but then there's a eureka moment, and then you kind of just become a believer and you think about, you know, the different use cases and how revolutionary it is. So I could definitely, um, you know, I, I definitely understand how it was to kind of have that friend that was in it for a while, then, you you know, you didn't really get it, but then the person kind of broke it down for you, and then now you, you see how it can how it can help your world or your industry. Um, also, I guess, why do you think, uh, you know, uh, healthcare is so distrustful? Is it, I know, you know, I, I'm not a healthcare professional, but I've heard of like HIPAA, which is like the law that, you know, makes it hard for people to ch share patient records. Is that kind of mm -hmm. the reason or is it a lot deeper than that? Um, unfortunately, as with many things, uh, in the American, uh, I guess in American society, it, it really, it kind of goes back to, um, uh, I think meritocratic systems, capitalism, and a fundamental belief that patients should not, patients are not educated enough nor responsible enough to have full ownership over their data or what happens to them health wise, right? So um, I think that without going into like a whole course, um, part of the reason why healthcare is just so messed up right now, and we have so many um, actors that don't seem to be working together, is has to do with like these fundamental misaligned incentives, whereby through our system, the actors in our system actually benefit and get more money by people being more sick. So ideally the quote unquote most profitable patient is not a healthy one. The most profitable patient is someone who is chronically ill for a very long time or possibly has like a rare illness whereby you're like maybe the only person making that drug for them. And because it's a chronic illness and because you don't have a cure for them or like a vaccine, they have to continue to spend money until the day, until the day they die taking your medication. Wow. And so 
in that kind of like a small sense, um, you can kind of get to see how things start to fall apart once we think about healthcare as a a money making business. And when we start to think of like, oh, you're only you're you're healthy or not healthy because of the choices that you make. And yeah, that is to in some to some extent true. So like you you think about like smoking, um, cigarette smoking, but even take something like so such a classic case of like, you know, obesity. There are arguably so many other societal factors and environmental factors that go into whether or not someone becomes obese. Like you imagine how much money are they making? Um, what's the environment that they're around? Like, are they, are they, is it a food desert? They only yeah. have McDonald's to go right, to. Right. Um, do they not have like a safe neighborhood to exercise in? So um, really, uh, I think a lot of the health disparities that we're seeing now are a result of this sickness profit driven system got it now do you do, i guess the fact that you brought out a lot of other things other than the person's um you know associate economic you know, attributes to a person that could contribute to their lack of health using i guess do you envision using the blockchain to kind of have like a 360 view of a person where you could also bring in like their income their parents background their you know mm-hmm. their zip code is that kind of where what do you think like i guess because when I think about blockchain, mm-hmm. it's more of a data thing. Is it mostly around data around you, or or or, or I guess where where do you to help um, solve those issues? Yeah, I think well, I could talk like use cases like all day long, but I think that um, as far as on that kind of like data and research perspective, um, I think that as we go forward, we're gonna basically in terms of like um, being able to measure these things, we're gonna have like a blockchain for research on how environmental factors are affecting people and how social factors and how people's income are, are affected or like the things that they eat. And all of those blockchains are going to communicate in some kind of way, probably um, feeding into a predictive analytics or AI ML type of system whereby we can um, aggregate all of these different kinds of data inputs to more accurately measure people's health. Um, I did want to make sure that I jumped back to uh, what you had brought up about HIPAA. And so, uh, as I had mentioned briefly, like the system works best when patients don't understand what's happening to their data. And a lot of people, like I was shocked when I found out like two years ago that in order to use CVS pharmacy or any other farm, any of these like larger pharmacies, when you go to like sign um, to consent, you're basically consenting to give away your data as long it's as long as it, it is anonymized. And so basically, what CVS pharmacy does is it takes your anonymized data, it sells it in aggregate to these health mining companies like IMS, and then IMS sells it to big pharma. Wow. So there, and most people have no idea that this is happening. And so I think that for blockchain, um, like as a, as a disruptive technology, we really have an incredible opportunity here in terms of data to not only give patients back that ownership so that say they could sell their data directly to pharma and get that um, payment back in crypto automatically, but you're also through blockchain able to preserve that person's anonymity. And that is what keeps it HIPAA compliant. Got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. That's awesome. That's pretty interesting. I guess, how do you think about the fact that healthcare is very, 
country specific where blockchain could be global i guess it would be something that it would be it would be a solution that would be limited to like the u.s there may be one for canada one for you know the uk or something like that or is there would is there is it possible to have kind of a healthcare solution that is cross border? Yeah, I mean, Fritz, you're like right on the money here because like uh, Heather Flannery is um, now head of um, Consensus and all of their global healthcare operations, and she's also the head of um, Big, which is uh, Blockchain and Healthcare Global. And in doing so, she's really trying to not only create so that um, effectively wherever blockchain gets implemented globally, there's some kind of set, set regulation of how to go about that. But she is really invested in having all of these different players who are trying to um, build blockchains globally to have a way of that being interconnected. I mean, they, I don't, I, I think that that's a big danger. It, of um, basically using this technology, but again, recreating the silos that we already had, but maybe that silo is, we just have fewer silos. However, I think this is, you're gonna have to work with government like to make sure that, tr to maximize the true potential blockchain, that it can be interoperable between various states, institutions, and governments. Got it, got it, awesome, awesome. I guess, you know, going back to, you know, your your role, right? And so, you know, one of your titles is blockchain architect. Like, what do you, I, I guess, what do you, what do you do um, as with, you know, what's your role as a blockchain architect within these healthcare projects that you work with? Yeah, so um, I do a little bit of everything, of course, sure. um, which I think really helps to inform uh, how I approach problems and of course thinking through like if a problem if blockchain is even the correct solution for these problems um, however you know kind of getting through the weeds a little bit more um, I am hoping to develop a longer career as like a blockchain solutions architect whereby I can actually uh, start to outline some of this infrastructure and how the data would flow how um, people would be, um, I guess, um, compensated in crypto or via token for whatever information they are contributing and to do so in a way that is, of course, like HIPAA compliant, but also is going to be efficient, safe, private, and um, ultimately to the betterment of the system as a whole and healthcare as a whole. Got it. Got it. I guess what are, what are, what are the two projects that you're involved in? Um, yes. Um, so I forgot to mention that my big entry into blockchain was actually through the Distributed Health Hackathon, okay. which um, my team ended up winning and we got $10,000 in Bitcoin, which is now like $11,000. Wow. <laughs> so like split between like four people. So I'm like sitting pretty on my like three thousand dollars <laughs> not so. bad not bad you didn't have to pay for it so yeah you... my like bitcoin it's like doing pretty okay <laughs> that's pretty cool um and so uh the project that we had actually come up with was called mercantus and um you know as i mentioned uh we really don't have 
great ways of learning from old data or using the data that we collect now and patients don't really have great ownership over what happens beyond the fact that you like consent to, to give away your data. And so we created an Ethereum-based marketplace for de-identified health research data. So basically if you were to participate in a research study, um, you would receive automated micropayments whenever someone would want to buy your data. Okay. And this is all happening like via smart contract. And again, like the best part of this is that you're able to um, participate in this ecosystem while remaining anonymous the entire time. Um, and so you imagine what, um, I guess, what is currently happening with IMS and um, Big Pharma, like what if you participated in like a diabetes research study and you were able to directly sell your data to a, a pharma company that was researching diabetes. Wow, 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 and get, and, and get compensated for it. Yeah, and get compensated and know that you were actively contributing to the betterment of science. Yeah, because otherwise you'd have to be somebody that, um, you know, is maybe getting treated at a university and where they could tell you, hey, we're doing this, 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 um, you know, this study. Would you like to? I, I see sometimes I see it on a train or on newspapers where like they are looking for people to do studies, like especially people that might may suffer from addictions or what have you. Mm -hmm. like, hey, um, but yeah, it's interesting that now you could kind of uh, crowdsource that, um, and then you could even get more data, which should allow you to have more accurate experiments. So, um, exactly. Awesome, awesome. Um, other than Mercantis, uh, is there anything else you're working on? Uh, yes. So, um, I'm currently an advisor to science distributed. Okay. Clearly I'm a really big health and science nerd. Um, and I'm also, um, their officer for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Okay. And so, um, science like healthcare has some real fundamental trust problems that basically just get in the way of us having better science, cheaper research and faster miracles, as we like to say at science distributed. So um, really like fundamentally, like scientists just don't trust each other. And this is really for good reason, because like science is really competitive. You don't want to get scooped. Um, and so what ends up happening is like these scientists keep their data super, super private and maybe at most sharing with like, you know, Dr. Chen does the research and is sharing with Dr. Johnson, who is all like like down the hall also working at like Columbia, you know. Um, and so when we have like these silos, we can't build off of what has been done before. And this is like in fundamental opposition to what it means to do good science, because science is all about iterating. And yeah. if you can't iterate, it's just waste. But all the, sci all the scientists want to, you know, they want to be able to have the quotes and their names on the white papers and mm -hmm. the books and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, even... Even in science, I guess the competitive urges kind of take over. Yeah. And I mean, I see a lot of parallels with just like even patents. Like you think about like people trying to like about to get scooped for um, an idea that they have. And I think it operates in that same way. So I think like with blockchain, um, we could have like an auditable record of what has happened in the past. Um, so that this data is not just like sitting on someone's like dusty PC somewhere or on like some thumb drive. And we can have a verified record of any like transactions, including like views and use involving that data. So we're, we have, we're using the ledger 
this the this tamper-proof ledger in an optimal way to really maximize our scientific integrity and um, to really curb a lot of what we've seen with like you know fake science and uh, I think recent not super recently but um, the link between you know vaccines and autism for instance and you know uh, one paper like that uh, was it was it had widespread negative social impacts even though the original authors like retracted the paper and there were plenty of other papers that came afterwards that were like this is not legitimate at all completely unsubstantiated but you know i would like to believe that if we're able to use a blockchain to have a record like that then we would be able to hopefully better inform people and to mitigate that negative social impact Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, no, very, very powerful work. Awesome. I guess other than the two projects you're involved in, and I think you mentioned um, a group at Consensus that are looking at different things. What are, I guess, what are some other use cases? Um, you know, their wearables, for, uh, anything around payments, EMRs, what, what kind of stuff are you, um, are you hearing about? Are you following? Yeah. So uh, I think that as far as use cases, really they exist on a spectrum. So on one side of the spectrum, you have use cases that involve like sensitive patient information and data. And um, really that that is also the use case that I think people talk the most about, which is specifically creating some kind of interoperable electronic health record keeping system, right? And um, because you can imagine like even to just get like your vaccinations, you have to call like maybe possibly five different institutions over that you've all visited throughout the course of your life and get them to like individually fax or email a vaccination record that they have so that you can like create a record. And it's just a a complete pain in the ass, like unnecessarily painful. Um, And so ideally people have been talking a lot about using blockchain to address that very interoperability problem and to put the, Um, ownership back into the hands of the patient. However, because this is dealing with patient data and because, as you can imagine, those um, electronic health record systems like Cerner and, um, uh, I forgot, shoot, I forgot the other one. That's all right. But Cerner and Epic, they're on having that data. Like you imagine you have like millions of patients like worth of data. Like, are they going to just easily give that up? My guess is probably not. not, And all the hospitals that have data, they're not going to probably give that up without a fight. So, yeah, there's a lot of regulatory problems with that. I think that it'll be coming. I'm glad people are working on it. But I don't think it's going to be one of the first use cases that we see. So um, going back to that spectrum, I think on the other side, we have... Um, use cases where blockchain can make like an immediate impact. And so for me, that's in uh, thinking about data where patients are developed are like, I guess, come like uh, patients are creating their own data as with wearables. So say you have like your Fitbit or something that's like more beefed up than a Fitbit. Um, and your and patients are able to sell that data right. to some kind of research institution or big pharma. And um, another great use case is in 
um, frauds and fraud and payments. So you imagine like a health insurance company, they have like all of these different databases that they need to look at to basically find out if someone has committed fraud. And of course it's a very slow process and, um, and there are whole departments that are devoted to finding insurance fraud. However, if you were to implement a blockchain, you would be able to detect fraud almost like instantaneously or have it flagged whenever there is um, some kind of, whenever someone's kind of like um, trying to like double, double, triple fill like a prescription from like different providers or something like that, or pretend or like uh, fraudulently be someone else. And so that kind of use case, which does not have anything to do with like patient, like patient information, like sensitive patient information in the same way that EMRs has, um, I think are going to be some of the first to come out. That sounds super, super interesting and, and, and very, very revolutionary and impactful. Um, other than that, I guess what expand, I mean, we, we discussed the consensus project a little bit, but. Can you expand on it? I think you just talked about the fact that someone was leading something there and help and kind of uh, trying to drive projects that take into account the local, I guess, the jurisdiction's laws and things of that sort. But are there any like specific projects that are, are pretty cool out of that shop? Yes. Um, so I had the pleasure of um, seeing Tori Adams speak, and so she's head of Consensus Civic in DC. And so they mostly do like government related um, partnerships. And so I'm not gonna like do her any justice in explaining this, but um, she has like just this fascinating, incredible talk about um, the use case for Ethereum in drug supply chain tracking. Yeah, this was in Philadelphia, correct? Um, yes, it was. Yeah, yeah, I'm not I, sure if you had a chance yeah, to see yeah, her. Yeah, I saw it. I saw it. It was uh, awesome. But yeah, but you, you'll explain it a lot better than I can. So <laughs> let me not just interrupt you. Go ahead. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, she's like no, a total badass. And I just, I can deeply appreciate the fact that like, having been someone who was like personally affected, that now she's like, taking the time to figure out just how broken this system is and at a very personal level, like figure out how she can use blockchain, specifically Ethereum, to fix it. I think it's super inspiring. Yeah, yeah. I guess the point the point of that project was to basically use the blockchain to source where some of these um, opioids are coming from. Yes. Um, and then, um, you know, they are, I guess if they hit the street, um, you'll be able to see where they come from and, and you know, hopefully, obviously try to s stop the leakage where it goes from, you know, something that's legal and supposed to um, solve pain for people in a legal fashion yeah, I, and, and then it hit the streets instead. Yeah, and so um, typically, uh, in, in case um, anyone isn't super familiar, like drugs going through the supply chain um, kind of hit manufacturing, or I guess they are manufactured. They go to they go to distribution, and then they eventually end up at like at pharmacy. But inevitably, in that system, you have like these prescription opioids that can go missing, are unaccounted for, or you know someone is like reselling them, like taking them out of the supply chain, reselling them, or you have like really super suspicious behavior, like. 
a distributor sending like hundreds of millions of opioids to a state where it would be enough to basically medicate the entire population, right? Um, and so what Tori had come up with was a self-auditing system based on Ethereum where every step of the supply chain, there's a bounty attached to like, if you can find some kind of suspicious or fraudulent behavior, you get that bounty. And as you oh, go wow. through the supply chain, the bounties get higher. And I think they're, they're actually like additive from before um, until you basically have like a super robust supply chain with few, if any, like unaccounted drugs. Uh, and so this is definitely game theory at its finest. And I think for me, it's this perfect marriage of, yes, we definitely need a blockchain. And yes, we definitely need tokens. Right, right. To incentivize, um, you know, according, uh, according, uh, I guess, it, for lack of a better term, informants or points at which, you know, things could be identified. Um, that, that, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of people like to say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm blockchain, but not crypto, not tokens. But for a lot of use cases, the only, the only thing that makes a blockchain work is to have incentives and you, use the token to incentivize people or incentivize the system um, to make it work. Um, pretty cool. I mean, obviously, you know, one of the things we talked about in the beginning before kind of going really deep into the uh, kind of the, the use cases and the different other things are the fact that you really are passionate about, um, you know, how blockchain can impact underserved communities. Um, can you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, well, I think uh jumping off of just like crypto um i think that crypto alone even if people don't understand like what blockchain technology is um just the fact of owning some kind of crypto is a way for underserved communities to not only have a way of sourcing new projects based on blockchain but are a way of engaging in investments and finance that we have just never seen before. Because like, um, I believe that until, I guess, recent decades, you actually had to like make a certain amount of money before you could talk to like a financial counselor and like invest your money. But like with crypto, um, you know, there's an actual opportunity for underserved individuals of underserved communities to, be involved in this ecosystem, even with just like a thousand dollars or 50 or 50, 20 bucks, you know, and um, knowing that with ICOs that are funding so many new blockchain projects, I think that we're really at a time when it's literally like when it's it's as if it's 1992 and the Internet is just starting out. Yeah. And if we had more people of color, women, LGBTQ people, not just in the room at the table, but if they actually owned that table, can you imagine how much more powerful the internet would be for our communities? And that's kind of the crux at which I see um, crypto, ICOs, and blockchain um, in an accessible kind of easy way uh, to propel um, positive social impact in underserved groups. 
Uh, I'm happy to go into like more use cases, of course, but I think like money, money talks and no, fundamentally, money, money yeah, fundamentally, if we aren't there helping, like having some kind of say, then the people who have historically held the money and the power, they're not going to be the ones to think about us, think about our projects, think about the things that are going to help our communities. So um, I think that that also in very strong part drives not only my role in the blockchain and crypto space, but drives my passion to like get more queer women of color, queer folks like involved. Awesome, awesome. No, 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 very, very, very powerful stuff. And I think, yeah, re representation matters. Um, Listen, you're you're a very very busy person. Um, I know you know I, we we definitely appreciate your passion, your knowledge. For people that want to continue following you and, and keep up with what you're working on, um, where should they where should they go? Um, so definitely feel free to hit me up on LinkedIn um, as Nicole Tay MPH. Okay. Uh, otherwise, you can actually find me as a new host on the Darkest Horse podcast. Awesome. Love to have you, <laughs> where oh, <thank> we you. <laughs> feature underrepresented leaders in tech and provide um, real professional advice for like other people of color and queer folks, women looking to break into tech and become dark courses themselves. Awesome, awesome. Well, we're going to definitely link to that in the show notes. And uh, thanks again. I really, really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And it's a wrap for this episode of the Coin Gamma Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Please share it out with members of your network, friends, family, associates. And most importantly, please leave a review on your podcast listening platform, whether it's iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, you name it. That really helps the podcast out. It helps us get more exposure and share our content with more people. And don't forget, we're available to help you out with your blockchain related projects just reach out coingamma.com until next time <laughs>